We've been uh, in experiencing God, and so that still sounds a little loud to me. I don't know if it... Okay, thank you. Uh, look, we're looking to God. Uh, we could ask the question, what prevents us from looking to God? We just sang, God, you reign. God has great power. God has great authority. He's done amazing things. We could look in the scriptures, and we could see these amazing things happen. We could look at... Uh, things in our own lives, our own testimony, how God has done things uh, for us or with us or through us. And we want to ask ourselves today, what prevents us from trusting him to do something great? What prevents us? It, it, it may not be an earth-shattering historical moment. It may also simply be just being faithful every single day. I always love and think about those generations that were waiting for deliverance, and waiting for Moses. It's 400 years. So there are people who were born, lived, got married, had their own children, and then they died only to pass on the promises that they received from their grandfathers, grandfathers, grandfathers. Well, that doesn't sound like as dramatic as some of the things God has done, but it is just as important in his, in his economy. They had to believe, even though they had very little to enforce their faith or reinforce their faith at that time. What prevents us? When we think about God doing something spectacular, something amazing, well, there's, there's lots of things that people feel of why they don't want God. They want to keep him at kind of at arm's length. Maybe they fear. Maybe it's just fearful. Boy, if, if God does fill in the blank X, Y, or Z, things are going to be different for me. Maybe different in your family. Maybe just... Um, uh, your, your dependence will have to change. When we were working with Celebrate Recovery, that was one of the things many people had was fear that they would actually get well. It's like, well, wait a minute, you're going to take away my crutch. Yeah, well, that's, that's fearful. That is a fearful thing. So they, they maybe really don't want God to intervene. Maybe they think, will I get hurt? Because, you know, when we stand for our faith, and believers have in historically stood for their faith, and even today around the world, believers are getting hurt. They're getting persecuted. They're losing their jobs. They're getting beaten up. Their, their, their homes are getting burned up. You think, you know, I don't know if I want us to have God do that because of the resistance. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Uh, or maybe they think, God will ask me to do something weird or embarrassing and read some of the stories of the prophets so um i don't know who i felt who i feel more sorry for isaiah or his kids because isaiah had to walk around naked for years two was it three years yeah it's like oh who's your dad well you know the guy oh yeah that'd be a little tough wouldn't it um or just, again, that something that is, other people would say is just crazy. The other reason why we don't really trust God for something amazing, frankly, just may be pride. We want the attention on ourselves. We love it when he does things for us. But what if it's for someone else? 
What if we're not getting the credit? We often want veto power on what God will do in our lives. So we say, God, I will do anything but, and fill in the blank. You don't have to say anything out loud. And we want that kind of power. And God says, well, let me know when you're ready then. And, he'll, and, and he'll, hopefully he'll walk us through that process. And I've told my stories before of every, everything I told God I would not do, I've done. So it's just bad advice. It's just, just a bad place to live. If you don't want to do something, the last thing you want to do is tell God you won't. Because he says, oh yeah? We'll see. We'll see about that. All right. Uh, we, are, we are what we often call, what a term we just heard, uh, called a practical deist. What, what do you mean? What do we mean by that? A practical deist. Well, first, you've heard practical atheists, perhaps. It's the idea of people are just going about their lives. They don't care one way or the other of who God is and whether there's a God or not. They're just, hey, you know what? I just want to watch my football and hunt and and I don't really care whether there's a God or not. They're practical atheists. A deist is someone who believes that there's a God, but he doesn't interact with us. He just made creation. He made all the galaxies. He made this earth. He made us. And he kind of wound it up and let it go and doesn't interact with people at all. Now, if you know from the scriptures, that's not a biblical view at all. Because uh, Jesus came and walked among us, God in human flesh. That's not a deist concept. The deist just thinks he's out there, but he doesn't ever deal with us. He doesn't talk to us. He doesn't do anything in our history. We're kind of on our own. Well, for many Christians, they're practical deists. We're just not convinced that God's going to do or is doing anything among us. He just doesn't move. He just doesn't move in people's lives today. You know all those old stories. They're, yeah, they may be historical, but they're just out there. That's a practical deist. And why do people feel that way? Because maybe they've never seen him work, and they just, based on their experience, he's not that way. It's it's frankly an easier religion. I'll go do and go do my religious stuff. I'll go to church on Sunday and. And I'll do religious things and kind of honor him, but I'm really not expecting him to do something dramatic. And, you know, I kind of get that. If you've read the story and if you're going through Experiencing God workbook, you'll get to that of Elijah calling down fire from heaven against 850 pagan priests. And it's like, that, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of faith to say, okay, fire come now. <laughs> and there it was. <laughs> that was, ugh. I mean, the, the, the thought, my thought was, the timing's really important here, God. You need to show up <laughs> and do that. And how would I look? In fact, for Elijah, he would have been killed if God didn't actually do that. And that was uncomfortable, uh, but, and it would have been easier for him not to do that. What is the work of God in our lives? How do we recognize that God is working or doing something beyond us? If you've, if you've had a besetting sin or some, some issue where you just finally reach the point of saying, I can't beat this. Lord, you have to. And then you see him do that. That's God's working in your life. That's exciting. Or rescue from some kind of bondage. 
God draws people to himself. We don't manufacture uh, a program to bring people to God. We see impossible circumstances flip. We could tell you a story when we were in Bible college of, of not having money for tuition. Uh, on, we needed it by Monday, and it was like, what, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that money came in in completely impossible circumstances. And so we were able to continue the schooling at that point. Um, we, when we do this, when we experience this growing intimacy with God, and you, you see it again throughout scriptures. I, I love in Ephesians 2 where you hear of our sin. We're sinful, we're bad, we're dead, we're icky, we're awful. And then you think there's no hope, and there is none. But then you read those little words, but God. But God. He's the, he's the writer of the gospel. How does, how does God satisfy wrath and love at the same time? We call that the cross. He does stuff like that even today, all the time. So we're going to look at a classic story that you may be familiar with. We're going to read most of Exodus chapter 14. And it's a story of crossing the Red Sea. And here's, here's what I want you to leave with. Again, the, the Experiencing God journey is, is going to be many, many weeks but for this week, just know there's only some things God can do. There's some things that only God can do. And that's, we, we need to get our minds around that. We need to believe him that that is true. What's going on? What's a historical background before they cross the Red Sea? I mentioned earlier they've been crying for deliverance for over 400 years. They saw the 10 plagues that uh, God worked through Moses, including the Passover. And finally, 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 Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. Just go. And I mean, they've gone through a lot of suffering. A lot of people have actually lost their lives through these plagues. Now think about what he's saying though. If you uh, work in accounting or you uh, have owned a business, what if your labor was free? I mean, that's, that's huge. You look at almost any business, and your number one expense by far is labor. But for Pharaoh in Egypt, they didn't have that expense. The Israelites were slaves, so they didn't have to pay them anything. And they're losing this huge labor force. doesn't mean that the other Egyptians, the Egyptians didn't work. Of course they worked. But they had to pay them or, or they were required to be under bondage as well. But this was a huge economic loss for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then on top of that, God promised them that when they leave, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. In other words, they're going to take their silver and their gold. and every, every, It's not just Pharaoh saying, get out of here, everyone else. Well, how about if I take all your gold? Just fine, just take it, just get out of here. They were so tired of their plagues and so forth. Uh, so they did plunder, plunder them, and they start walking led by God. God led them with a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by, by night. It was a very direct thing. They could all see it. And this was not a small group of people, including women and children. The estimates are 2.4 million people leaving Egypt. That's a big group of people. But here's what's happened. Hebrew, or the Pharaoh and the, and the other leaders, they start having second thoughts. Because after a while, they think, 
Oh, snap. <laughs> what did we do? We just, we just sent this huge workforce out. <clears throat> Exodus verse, uh, chapter 14, 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back in a camp in front of, uh, if I could say this, Pi Harioth, between Migdal, Migdal and the sea in front of Bel Safon. We'll get into those locations in a minute. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are want, uh, uh, say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So the, as God's leading them, it's going to kind of look like they don't know what they're doing. And we're not sure exactly where. There's some debates on where they exactly crossed the Red Sea. But there is this one spot where it kind of fits, where there's, there's two sets of mountain ranges, north and south, and then the sea to their east. And they're, they're literally kind of boxed in. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh, and all the host and, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Literally, that I am Yahweh. Literally, actually, it's that I, they'll know Yahweh. That's what I want to say. They'll know Yahweh. Remember, as we looked at his name, Yahweh means I am. Um, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. Egypt was at the top of the world at that point. They were the, the superpower and they had the, the chariots and the army to back it up. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped by the sea. And there are those cities listed again. So God predicts this all along. He says, look, I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to do some things with Pharaoh and his mind and his heart. They're going to come after you. 600 chariots, the premier weapon of the day, and soldiers, they thought they're, they're hopeless, they're helpless. They're going to be starving. They're going to want water. They're going to be ready to come back and say, you, you kind of regret leaving? Well, come on back. You could be our servants again. And here's that force. They are literally, Israel is between a rock and a wet place. They have the ocean in front of them. The Red Sea's in front, and here comes Pharaoh's army in the back. Now, I'm, I usually make a little assumption here. Have you ever traveled with a group of people, say you know, 10, 20 people? As you're going and traveling and walking, maybe you're at a fair or a concert or something, and you're walking through, who kind of gets toward the back in your, of your group? It's people who are slower, obviously. They're, they're just going to kind of fade to the back. So in this sense, I think we could assume that at the back of Israel's column, you're going to have people who are older, people who are sick, people with children. And so they would be the weakest ones. So my assumption is, and I want to clarify, it's an assumption that the tip of the spear of Pharaoh's army is going to be after the weakest of them. 
And these aren't, these aren't soldiers. These are slaves. They were not trained as soldiers. And even if they were, it's one thing for a soldier to defend himself. But what if you also have to watch out for your, your spouse, your kids, your parents? And it's a little bit different to think, okay, I can take care of myself, but now I have these other people. What if, what if someone attacks one of your kids, but to go save them, you have to leave everyone else undefended? I mean, that's a tough decision. What do you do? So as they see army or Pharaoh's army come and this cloud of smoke is coming after them, they're starting to panic. They're starting to panic. But remember, God himself put Israel in this place. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't something where we said, oh, what do we do? Remember, he's leading them. He told Moses to go in this place. But they needed to know that they needed God. He had a purpose. The Egyptians will know that I'm God, and they will too. Now, I love Moses' response because the people are panicking. Let's read 10 through 18. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, mockingly, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away here to die? Is that why we came out here, Moses, just so we could die here? What have you done? To us in bringing us out of Egypt. Is, this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians that we... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I misread. For better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Remember we talked about fear? You don't want God to kind of mess up your apple cart? That's what they were worried about. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Look, people, sit down, shut up, and watch. For the Egyptians you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Well, there's a big sea there, but tell them to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch your hand over the sea, and divide it, just like Charlton Heston did. Some of you get that. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. You keep hearing this, right? About how God's going to be honored and glorified. And all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Fear. They were afraid. Now, there's, there's two kinds of fear that we face. There's unrealistic fear. If, if you do not go out, if, if every time you go outside, you wear a motorcycle helmet because you're worried about meteorites, that's unrealistic. Sure, it's possible, but probably not. The odds are very much in your favor. But, you know, as we go through and, and drive, I'm always, sometimes I'll drive between like here and the school and I still put my seatbelt on because I thought it would be me who gets in an accident in that short little time. But we wear seatbelts because, realistically, it could happen. 
Almost everyone's been in an accident. So, so putting on a seatbelt is a realistic thing to do. Israel was facing a realistic fear. Here comes this army and the seas in front of them. What have we done? What have they done? Well, they, they benefited from God's promise of deliverance. They saw what he did. They left Egypt at his bidding, and they witnessed the power of the ten plagues and Passover and everything. But, folks, fear cast out logic. We can look back on this, and we could say, what was their problem? But fear cast out logic even though their faith had something even to see. They cry to God, they cry to Moses, and again, in a mocking way where there are no graves. We're just here to die, right? It would be better to be in slavery, but that's not what God wanted on them. It, it, it's, the pressure's on, it would have been easy to blame others. And as we said, Moses replies to them, just folks, just watch, just watch. And God tells them, move forward, stretch out your staff, I'm gonna divide the water, and, and you're going to walk on dry ground. Now, I know in, in the movie and in other depictions, when you, if you see a picture or a painting or whatever, and you see the division of the, of the Red Sea, it's like this narrow little column, maybe, maybe 10, 20 people across. But do the math. Okay? If there are 2.4 million people you can't have this narrow little column. Now, they, they did travel all night long. We, we read that in, in the chapter was where they're going to be walking through all night long. But that division is not just this 20, 30 feet across. This had to be huge in order for those people to have enough time, even though it's all night, to get that many people across on dry land. So, so we need to kind of expand our view of how widely the... The water was parted in order, in order just for practically to get everyone across. And there were walls of water on both sides. I imagine what that was like uh, to just see these. I mean, could you see the fish? I mean, what, what was it like? Was it an aquarium? I'd, I'd, I'd touch it and probably cause a leak and, then, you know, and walk away like I didn't do anything. But uh, what, that, was, that was an amazing thing for the people to see that deliverance. And God says, I'm going to send Pharaoh and his, his army. They're going to get wet. You're going to be dry. And again, it mentions, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. I am God. Well, what happens? Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand, doing what he's told, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptians' forces in a panic. So he's delaying them, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, so again, everyone's now across. Stretch your hand over the sea that the water may come back over the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Tidal wave. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Um, they try to follow God, you know, causes them to panic, to be afraid, messes up their wheels. Later on in Psalm 77, uh, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's not recorded here, but Psalm 77 says that God sent rain and thunder and lightning and earthquakes against them too. So they were fighting about all that. Uh, crashing and dying. What a, what a horrible uh, thing for them to experience. Uh, Again, historically, where did this happen and so forth? There are lots of debates. There are some interesting things that have come up with archaeology and so forth, but the, the, there won't be anything left. I mean, we're talking thousands of years ago. Certainly no bodies uh, and so forth, of, you know, and then silt and everything moves around. You never know what's covered up uh, as well. Uh, and we, we know that even here from there was a, a submarine, the Hunley in, in the Civil War, sank off the shores of, of um, uh, North Carolina, I believe it was, or South Carolina. Well, it was 100 years later where they finally found it the, as the sand and everything shifted. So even within 100 years, that can happen. However, there are some interesting formations of coral in the Red Sea that are round with crisscrosses. Now, we don't know if they're chariot wheels, but boy, they sure look like it. And actually, there's one where there's a, it looks like a wheel and then a, a spike coming up the top and another wheel on top of that. Boy, that looks like an axle on end. So maybe those are there. Again, the, the metal and everything's gone, but the coral has formed in that shape. This is called a watershed moment for Israel. Do you know what a watershed moment is? Most of us have had watershed moments in our lives. Countries have watershed moments. Uh, there, it's a key point. It's just from that point on, you're not the same. That's what it is. Same thing for a country. Uh, uh, for, for us as a country, the Civil War would have been a watershed moment. 9-11. It's a watershed moment. Uh, for individually, the death of a parent or graduating or getting married, those are all watershed moments. In chapter 14, 30, and 31, God describes this watershed for Israel. The, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, they saw it. They had reason to believe. Wow. And later on, you see, they didn't quite remember. I mean, they remember, but it's somehow they just lost their belief. They forgot this watershed moment. They were supposed to be different. Uh, 
They had to trust in the word of God. He promised them for deliverance. They, they should have remembered. They were, told, they were told what to do. What is God's will for their life? Walk forward. That was it. And this event, this crossing of the Red Sea is remembered and brought up again in the Old Testament. In fact, it's even in the New Testament where they refer to this. There's one particular story in Numbers chapter 13 where they, they've gone through, they're, they're actually on the front door of the promised land, way in the south. You remember Israel runs north to south, narrow country. They're in the south. They're about ready to go in. And God says, send some spies in to check it out. And the spies go in and they bring back these huge clusters of grapes and say, this place is amazing, but there are giants. There are mighty people in the land. These are the people that walked through the Red Sea. It didn't have an effect on them over time. And we're not going to go in there, Moses, because if we go in there, our kids will die. And because it was a watershed moment, God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait for y'all to die. And when they talk about Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, this is why. We're going to wait for about 40 years, and all of you who were adults who saw the Red Sea, we're going to wait for you to die. And these kids that you're worried about, we'll all bring them in. And that's exactly what God did. There's only two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb, because they remembered and they believed God. So what does this mean for us? Well, remember, I asked you to remember that God does God-like things. God does God-like things. He's worked before. He can work again. And there are scriptures full of stories after story. If you, wanna, if you want the Reader's Digest condensed version of God's stories and what he's done, Hebrews chapter 11, over and over and over again. People believed him, and he did miraculous things. It's, it's not faith to see God's power, because you see it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So we believe when we don't see it. We follow him, not the other way around. This is not something where God says, well, whatever you want, I'll do this for you. It's we join him in what he's doing. There are people who don't want to follow Christ or follow them in their life unless he does something miraculous. I remember my dad saying that. I'm, I just want God to touch me. And I said, he's not going to do it. Jesus condemned that attitude. He says, you guys seek miracles. You just need to believe, even though we did a lot of miracles. We don't seek miracles. We seek him that's the difference. And we join him in what he is doing. Israel was not to follow their own plan. If they did that, they would have been back in slavery. They were to follow the Lord. Go forward. Walk in the middle of these walls of water. They were to trust. They were to keep quiet. They were watching to give glory. What has he told us to do? What has he told you to do? What has he told us to do from his word, from the Holy Spirit, personally? 
Has he, has he told you to do anything as a family or as a church? How do we look for God to work and live in our daily life? Remember, he's a person. We, we spend time with him. We listen to him. We're on the lookout for him. Last week, we looked at that concept of abiding. You just stay connected with him. God does God-like things. And often, maybe not always, maybe, maybe we're like the generation of 400 years, just being faithful, just trusting. But God will say, I'm going to do something. And I want you to be part of it. What's our job? We believe. We believe. What does he want us to do? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I can guess at some things. But we got to be ready. Are we praying for Mason to be healed? Can God do that? Absolutely. I mean, I mean he put... He put he spins galaxies around for fun. He could do that. What if he doesn't do it? What if he, what if he has another purpose? Is God, is, is this going to be kind of a watershed for us where we, where we learn to trust him for something else or maybe something completely different? I don't have anything specific in my mind. I mean, I know some burdens he's put on my mind and heart. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be trusting him for, for him to do what he wants done. Uh, we worry about what is God's will. Sometimes he reveals things specifically. Did you ask what God wanted you to wear this morning? I didn't. I just made sure I didn't clash. I don't clash, do I? Sometimes I don't know. There's, there's so much we know that already that God wants us to do. He wants us to, for example, make disciples. Just like he said, Israel, go forward. Well, we know he wants us to make disciples. So guess what we should be doing, Zion? We should be making disciples. Should we be people of prayer? Yeah, we're told throughout the, old, throughout the New Testament, pray. Pray always. Pray without ceasing. Giving up prayer all the time. I mean, almost in every single book of the, of the New Testament, we're told and encouraged to pray. We should be people of prayer. How about, how about um, loving one another? Is that God's will? Yeah, even when we're not very lovable. He's already told us what to do. And through those, he may be working behind the scenes in our hearts and in our lives, in our community, and later we'll go back and discover, wow, we had no idea that God was working. Quick historical example. Roman Empire. Godless. <laughs> when you talk about people without God, I mean, just completely godless. Decadent, awful. But some things happened in the Roman Empire uh, that I think are strategic. I think are not by accident. One, one you were familiar with is a Roman road. Some of their roads are better than ours, and they're thousands of years old. They put this whole road network together. The other thing is called the Pax Romana. It's, it's about it for me in Latin. It means the peace of Rome. It means it was safer 
to travel around in, within the empire because they took care of all these other groups of you know, raging, rampaging uh, other countries coming in. They, they put kind of a season of peace about it. And so you could travel around later. Guess when those two things were at their height? Around the first century when this thing called the gospel was spreading. And God has been organizing and setting all these, these things up. We think, wow, that's a long time for him to be doing that. But God's always working. He's doing God-like things. The word of God doesn't tell us that God established the peace of Rome and the roads. But it sounds like a God thing for him to do. And maybe we're in that, that place as well. Maybe in our lifetimes we won't see it. Maybe, just maybe, we also know that we need to be ready for Christ's return. And focusing our, our attention and our efforts saying, well, what is God's will assuming, and I think it's a strong assumption, that he's coming any day. How's our life going to be different? How, what are we going to do? Are we going to be like Israel and gripe and moan and say, hey, this is tough. Hey, let's go back to the old ways. Let's go back where we're comfy. Or say, God, we're going we're gonna to walk forward because you do great things. God does great things. Let's remember that this week. In our pause and pray time, uh, just a few things. First, remember God's greatness can be seen. It can be seen. And then uh, since it was so much, I, I use the name Yahweh here because God repeats it so much. But Yahweh, thank you, thank you for leading me to where I have to trust you. That's another thing God does. They had to trust God. You can't just walk into the water. You had to trust him. And then, God, I will trust you for the Red Sea of, fill in the blank, even if I drown. So can we spend some time praying together out loud? If you, of course, as always, if you don't want to pray out loud, pray quietly with us. But what's God put on your heart and his power? What great thing do we need to see? God, I thank you that you are trustworthy. hmm Mm-hmm. God, I pray that you will give us faith to take those steps, to go forward when it doesn't look like the logical way to go. Mm-hmm. Pray against our fears. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I pray for students who are believers mm-hmm. to give them boldness, mm-hmm. to share their faith, to share the hope that is in them, that God's lives would be changed. Um, 
Yes. Yes. God, you do great things, and there are times and seasons in my life where I just start, stop experiencing that. I, I start relying on myself. I start relying on my own resources and talent or experience and whatever those things may be, but I, I Lord, want to see you do great things. And I'm, I'm not asking you, Lord, as an individual, as a, or as a speaking for our whole church here, that we ask you to join or bless what we're doing. We want to join what you're doing. Even, Lord, if there's, there's never any, we're not looking for acclamation. We're not looking for uh, credit. We, we are so excited to know that you call people to join you in what you're doing. And so, God, as a church, we do call for that. I thank you for leading us. Uh, Lord, we've been, many of us have been praying since 2007 for this valley. And maybe this is the time, maybe, or this is another step. But, Lord, this, the, this is a season where perhaps you're working. May we be ready. May we be obedient with what we already know to, to spread the good news, to, to, uh, to make disciples, to show love and concern uh, to people, to um, show love for one another, to to follow Jesus, to abide in Him. There's so many, so much in Your Word that we know, and Lord, also to be greater and greater people of prayer. God, I pray not just for our church here, Zion, but Lord, for our other churches, that that You would um, move in our hearts, and more than that, that we would listen, and that we would follow and say, we are going to seek God's face. We are going to pray, we're going to seek his word, we are going to praise him, and we're going to seek, Lord, your agenda and not our own. And we thank you, Lord, again for this, this series, this time where we're, we are getting to know you and what you're like and what you are doing. In your name, amen. As our worship team comes up, I have a few announcements for you. Uh, many of you know, hope you know, there is a fundraiser for, uh, for Mason. It is at the Sugar Creek Fire Hall. This is huge. This is really big. Uh, and it, it is just expanded beyond people's imaginations. So uh, it is a barbecue chicken takeout. There's, uh, what is it? It's a Chinese auction. Is that the term with the baskets? 
or basket, basket auction. Um, the, there's over 200 of them that have been donated. There's 400 now. Oh, 400. <laughs> Doesn't God do big things? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So um, what was I saying? So anyway, the, uh, it's going to be crowded, all right? But they are doing shuttle parking at the Paradise Park, which is right down the road from, um, uh, from the, the Sugar Creek Fire Hall there. So it's noon to four today. Uh, there's no ATM or anything like that. So if you want to uh, go and do the basket thing or buy a, 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 a dinner, I think it's the, the baskets are $10 for a sheet. I think it's $15 for the dinner uh, if you want that. Uh, while it lasts, okay? Um, noon to four, and, or if you just want to donate there, I'm sure they'll accept that as well. I think there's a 50-50. So, uh, yeah, God, it's amazing how uh, this community is, is coming around. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is back there on the table, there's a box, and it says Living in Liberty on that. We uh, have been supporting Living in Liberty to uh, help uh, uh, people be delivered from uh, sex trafficking. Uh, for September, they've asked if anyone has these around, uh, they'll be donated to Living in Liberty, but they're asking specifically for women's tennis shoes, either new or gent- gently used, sizes 6 to 11. That's one thing. Uh, perfumes, lotions, that cutesy, foo-foo-y stuff. Um, uh, and s- small flashlights, okay, as well with something specific. Also, women's zippered hoodies, all sizes, new or gently used. And so we actually only have one more Sunday left um, of, this, of this month, which is next week. Uh, and, but those are the September things they've asked if you're here during the week, of course, you can put those things as well. And then I'm, I'm very excited about an opportunity we have. Uh, several of us were at a conference at Grove City College. And there is a group of students. They're, they're on, a, on a ministry track and so forth. They're in a spiritual life class. And uh, the uh, professor wants them to... I know it's an assignment, it's a school assignment, but this is something really cool uh, where they're going to put together, create a prayer summit time, about three hours. And they want to do it not for themselves, but for a church. I signed us up. And I got to meet with these kids last on Friday. And so please block this out in your calendar. But it's November 11th, so 11-11, and we're looking at 9 to 12, and they're even going to have lunch for us, if that. So we're going to be, they're going to be, we'll be working with them, uh, be times of worship, extended times of prayer, um, both in music and otherwise. All these things will, will be happening. Um, I'm, again, we want, I've been praying for us that we would be more and more people of prayer. And again, this is, is this what God's doing? I'm not exaggerating. That very day, I was just saying, come on, let's do this, God. Let's do this. That very day, I get this email of this opportunity. I think we need to be there. I think we need to listen to the Lord working in our lives and hearts. So 11-11, 9 to noon. 
So please put that down and reserve it. Let's continue in our worship. Please.